Well, good morning again. Glad that you are with us today. I know that uh, you have probably already opened your bulletin and seen the outline. And somebody in the first service said to me, wow, after seeing the outline, I'm really glad I came to the first service because you have to be done at a certain time. Glad I didn't come to the second service because you can go on forever. Well, I promise not to go on forever, but I do have a lot of information to share with you today. Uh, We are in a series that we started last week talking about truth and answering questions uh, that people ask you about your faith, about Christianity. And last week, as you remember, if you were here, we talked about the resurrection and all of the evidence that really proves the resurrection uh, and actually takes more blind, uneducated faith to not believe the resurrection than it does to believe the resurrection when you look at the evidence. The problem is most people don't look at evidence. They only look at what they choose to see. And uh, so uh, hopefully that uh, last week really ministered to you, it helped you. And those um, slides actually are on the city, which is our church's kind of private uh, social network. Uh, If they will help you at all, uh, you feel free to take them, use them as you will. Today we're going to talk about three big questions, and I, I really appreciate all of the input this week. I remember last week I kind of chastised you all because I'd asked for questions, I got nothing. So last week I said, hey, you know, nobody sent me anything, so I'm just going to make up my own questions, and this week I got inundated. I don't know if that was uh, in response to the sermon that you thought it stunk, or uh, that I just didn't answer the questions you want answered, but I thank you for all your questions. In fact, what we've decided to do, I'm going to answer three big questions today, and then next week we're going to actually have a a kind of a panel, uh, the, the, Pastor Derek and Pastor John are going to join me up here. We're going to do kind of a panel discussion about uh, many of the other questions that you don't hear answered uh, today uh, because there were so many and they were really good ones and I appreciate that. Let's talk about why it's important for us to be able to answer questions. And we find that in two specific passages. Uh, first in Colossians 4, 6, it says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then, of course, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so we see in both of these passages this balance between knowing and understanding our faith, being able to answer (laughs) questions, being able to speak the truth, but doing it in a loving and caring way. Always making sure that if people are offended, they are offended by the uh, message of the truth, not the delivery of it. Uh, whenever anybody comes to Fellowship of Grace for the first time, if they are offended by the sermon, uh, I always want to find out, are you offended by the message? If you're uh, offended by the truth that was spoken, that's between you and God. I don't write this material. I'm not smart enough to come up with my own material. I just steal all God's stuff. Uh, but uh, uh, if you're offended by the way I delivered it, I would owe you a terrible apology because uh, that's not my intention at all. It should always be delivered in love and concern uh, with grace, as we see in these passages. Uh, but there are some questions that uh, plague us. Uh, there are some questions that keep coming up as we talk to people who are far from God, who are yet to have found his son, Jesus Christ. And I want to help you with those questions because uh, uh, it's important for us to be able to answer them. It's important for us to be able to talk to people in an educated and well-informed way about these things. And so let's look at our first question today. The first question is this. Isn't all truth relative? Doesn't truth change? Really what this question is saying is, uh, do we believe in relativism or absolutism? 
Is truth absolute and never changing, or is it relative to your situation and your thinking? Does truth change as we go about life? Now, here's a philosophical statement that our kids are being taught in school today, uh, starting with probably late grade school, middle school, and especially high school. What is true today wasn't true yesterday, and what is true today won't be true tomorrow. Now, here's the really bad part of that. 85% of all uh, teenagers who describe themselves as fundamental evangelical kids believe that. 85, these, are, these are not kids whose parents are far from God, who have uh, no religious background. These are the kids in good Bible-believing churches who believe that what was true today won't be true, wasn't true yesterday and what is true today won't be true tomorrow. That's, that's a big problem, folks. That's a really, really big problem. So how do we present truth in a war, world where all truth is really considered equal? When you ask the question, why is something truth, eventually somebody says, well, it's true because I believe it. Really? Does that make it true for everybody? Let me ask you a question, and I, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but how many of you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Raise your hand. Let me see it. Okay. How many of you believe it's true because you believe it? Okay, how many of you believe it's true for everybody else? So it's only true for you? It's not true for them? Here's the pro- See, this is the problem. See, we don't know what's true and what isn't. We don't know what's true for us and what's true for everybody else. Here's what I would say, folks. Some would say, the Bible is true because I believe it. But I think an intelligent person says, I believe it because it's true. See, there's a difference. There's a difference in saying uh, that, uh, hey, because I believe it, it's true. That means that I get to be the determiner of truth in the universe, which is ridiculous. But to say, I believe it because it's simply true. Listen, I believe gravity. I, I don't believe gravity because I made it true. It's just true. I was going to do something and jump off here, but I'm afraid I'll break something. So I don't want to do that, okay? Gravity is real. Trust me. Trust me. All right? So here's what Jesus said about truth in John chapter 8. He said, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now let's look at a logical problem with relativism, and that is the relative paradox. Relativism is a logical paradox that cannot and does not exist. Here's why. Now, this is where, this is where your uh, eyes might begin to spin counterclockwise. The statement, all truth is relative, is an absolute truth statement. So if somebody says, all truth is relative, they have absolutely stated something. If the statement is true then absolute truth exists because it exists in the statement itself. But if the statement is false, then all truth is not relative. There's a logic problem here, folks. When we begin to say that, that relativism is true, we've already stated that there is no truth, really. And this logic problem is just, it's not solvable. Here's the answer. All truth is absolute and unchangeable. 
It can't be relative because there's a logic problem that says it can't exist that way. But as soon as you say all truth is absolute, there's no logic problem. Gravity exists because it simply exists. It's true. Now, while I state that that is an absolute statement, there are some circumstances where it can appear, it can appear that truth is relative. And I want to help you to see these so that you can identify them and talk about them when they come up in conversations with your friends because they will say there's, there are specific situations where truth is relative. So let's talk about them, okay? It may appear to be relative, and changing when any of these three circumstances exist. And here's the first uh, example. When historical discoveries or changes provide new information or change circumstances. Now, whenever somebody tells me, and I get into a conversation with somebody and they tell me that truth changes, I say, well, give me an example. Give me a really concrete example of how truth has changed. And I would say well over 50% of them, I haven't kept track, but well over 50% of the people that I get into conversations with say, well, uh, the number one example is the flat earth theory. Because there was a time when the most learned and the, the, the most uh, intelligent scientists on our planet believed the earth was flat. There was a time for that. And that was true for them, right? But then something happened. They began to uh, get new information as, as people went on uh, voyages on ships and they went further and further and further and further, thinking they would fall off the edge of the planet, but realizing at some point we got around back to where we started from. And this isn't flat. There's new information. It's, it's actually a sphere. By the way, don't say it's round, because it's not round. It's a sphere. <laughs> it's not a circle, because see, that's the flat earther. Okay? But here's the thing. People think that the truth changed. See, it was true that the earth was flat, and now it's true that the earth is a sphere. Did truth really change? The whole time that people thought the earth was flat, wasn't it really a sphere? Them thinking it was flat didn't make it flat. And so truth hasn't actually changed. Only our understanding of truth changes. Only our perspective of truth really changes. And so truth doesn't change, but our understanding does. Uh, the other, the second one, is when two absolute truths collide and create a moral dilemma. Now, I'm going to need some audience participation today, so help me out here. How many of you in this room believe that life is precious and it should be saved if possible? If you were in a situation and you could save somebody's life, how many of you think it's important to do that? Okay. How many of you believe that it's really important for us to obey the laws of the land and so uh, we should obey all of the legal systems in our society? <laughs> Fewer, okay, no, okay. Now, what about a situation where a young man is drowning in a lake with a sign that says absolutely no swimming? Do we break the absolute law of what the government says to do? Or do we break the absolute law of saving someone's life? See, the reality is in that moment, these two absolutes collide with each other. We're in a situation where we can't obey both of them. And so we make the moral choice to save the boy's life and break the law of swimming. Right? We go and we say, this. now, did that make it untrue that we shouldn't swim there? No. The truth is still the truth. 
It's still illegal. It's still wrong. But we've done something that's slightly wrong for something that's much greater good. And we've got to be careful in those situations that we don't try to justify all the things we want to do. But there are times where there are moral dilemmas that two rights collide with each other. And we simply can't obey everything. So in that moment, it appears like, well, this sign is really just relative. It's no swimming, really, unless there's a good reason. No, it's absolute, it's still true, but there may be a reason to break that truth. The third way that sometimes absolutes appear relative is when language creates miscommunication about truth. Let me show you what I mean. How many, believe, how many of you in this room believe that you're saved by faith? Let me see your hands. That is pure heresy. That is absolute heresy from the pits of hell. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If I have faith that I can fly, that won't save me. See, so it's not my, see, it's, all I've done is I tricked you. I, I know, sorry. I tricked you, Right? I know it wasn't fair. Life isn't always fair. Okay? So I tricked you in the sense that words are important, folks, and words have meaning. And so sometimes things can appear to be factual and true and absolute when in reality they may not. What we just went through there is a misunderstanding of truth. It wasn't... So now let me ask the question. How many of you believe you're saved by faith? See how easy that is? See, as soon as you understand the question, as soon as the words are clear, there's no more confusion. And so many times when absolutes uh, uh, exist and they seem relative, here's another example. Uh, how many of you believe, and I know you're all freaking out now, you're not going to raise your hand for anything. How many of you believe that the Bible teaches that it's wrong to take another human life? Let me see your hands chickens. Okay. Okay. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible, the Bible teaches us not to commit murder. Now the King James version of the Bible kind of messed us up a little bit because they mistranslated uh, mis, uh, uh, in the Ten Commandments the word for murder for kill. We all learned as kids, do not kill. In fact, it's on a whole bunch of buildings everywhere, do not kill. That's not what it says in the Greek. It doesn't say do not take the life of a human it says, do not commit murder. Murder always insinuates that there's an innocent life that's being taken by your hands. That's different. Okay? Uh, many people can, can say, and I would agree with them, that the taking of a life in war commissioned by the government is allowed. Punishment of criminals is allowed, and even in self-defense. If somebody breaks into my home and threatens to kill my wife and children... Does the Bible allow me to defend them? I think it does. I think it does. It's not committing murder. There's, he's not an innocent party. He's not an innocent party. And so we got to be careful about how words are used. we got to be careful and understand clearly what's being communicated. But the point of all this is, folks, in every one of these situations where it appears that things are relative, they aren't really. They're really very absolute. Absolute truth exists, and it's our responsibility to find it and to live it and to accept it. So the answer to the question, 
is. Isn't all truth relative? Doesn't truth change? No. No. All truth is absolute and unchangeable. Absolute and unchangeable. Let's move on to question number two. Now, I need a volunteer that doesn't mind getting embarrassed. Anybody? Anybody? Do I need to call on somebody? It needs to be an adult. All right, Tony, come on up here, buddy. You are a brave, brave man. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, and I want you to say uh, loudly what your answer is, okay? So do you know Jesus personally as your Savior? Yes. Do you believe that that the Bible is the Word of God? Yes. Do you believe it's true? Yes. Do you believe that it's historically accurate and reliable? Yes. Why? Because everything that's ever been refuted has been proven. That's a kind of a halfway answer. All right, good job. Okay. Do you notice that long pause? Listen, all of you giggling, you'd probably have a long pause too. The reality is, for most churches, only about 5% of people can answer that question. Shame on us, and shame on us as pastors, if only 5% of the people in this church can answer the question of why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God. I'm going to help you here. I'm going to help you to understand some real information very quickly and I'm, uh, I'm going to have these slides on the city uh, so that you can go back to them and refer to them. But I want to encourage you to look this stuff up. Okay, look this stuff up. Understand it. So that when somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible is true? You can say, well, let me tell you three big reasons. Boom, boom, boom. Here are the reasons. And by the way, that's why you should believe it too. I want you to be able to do that, folks. So let's talk about it very quickly. Actually, in the question, how can we trust that the Bible is true? There's really two questions I see in that, and we have to separate them out. The first one is, is what we have today what was written down 2,000 years ago? That's kind of half the truth there. The other half is, is what was written down 2,000 years ago true? And that's even more important, because if what was written down 2,000 years ago wasn't true, I could care less if I've got a correct copy of it or not. You understand what I mean? Okay? But both of these things have to exist for the Bible to be true. Now, when you uh, examine any book in history to see if it's true, you apply a history, hist- I practiced this 20 times, historiography. Okay? It's the principles of determining accuracy, authenticity, and reliability. And this is the bibli- bibliographical text test. And here it is. Let's start with this. What's the timeline? You want to know what the timeline is. Because you see, the closer the known manuscripts are to the original, the rule is, the principle is, the more reliable the manuscripts. A lot of you have played the telephone game in your lifetime. Uh, You've got 10 people here in a row. The first person whispers something into the second person's ear and so on and so forth. And you see how much different it has changed by number 10, right? It's hardly ever even close to the beginning, especially if it's a long amount of information. So so it's important to understand how far are we going away from the original. That is a critical part of testing whether something is really accurate or not. Now, literature of antiquity, and especially at the time that the New Testament was written, we're going to just focus on the New Testament today, okay? It was written on papyrus. These are thin strips of uh, the papyrus reed that are crisscrossed and then kind of pasted together. And they form this kind of durable paper. But this material doesn't last. Okay? It all disintegrates kind of on its own. I don't know if you've ever found any of those old love letters from high school, and you open them up, and they're kind of like falling apart. I didn't get any, so I've never done that. But anyway, (laughs) uh, uh, 
Listen, a papyrus, papyrus is a natural substance, and so when it, it goes through a process of hundreds of years, it just begins to disintegrate. In fact, there are examples uh, where people have uh, pulled things out of a cave or someplace like that where it's been for hundreds of years, and they hold it up to the sun, and it simply begins to disintegrate into their hands. Okay, So we don't have any originals. We don't have any originals of the New Testament. We don't have anything that was like signed Paul, and it was actually in his pen. But, but that's also why the pieces of manuscript that we have have to be preserved behind glass and they have to be temperature controlled. They have to be protected from the elements or they would simply disintegrate. Okay? But we don't have any originals and we're willing to admit that. But how do we determine the age of historical manuscript? That's important. Well, we can dis- uh, determine the age based on what it's written on, what kind of ink is used what kind of division it is of the verses. When, when Paul was writing a letter to a church, he didn't write number one, number two, number three, number four, number... That's all been added later so that we can find parts of the Bible quickly. And that's actually changed uh, over the years. Uh, sometimes we see first letters that are real ornate and very artistic, a uh, first letter of a, a letter or a first letter of a, a verse. That helps us to, to uh, do the... Uh, uh, the age of something, and also carbon dating and those kind of scientific experiments help us to determine the age of a document. So I want you to see some works of history. Because remember, one of the tests is the distance of the earliest manuscripts we have to the original. So let's look at some works of antiquity here. Plenty of the younger. These are a series of letters. The distance of time between when they were originally written and the earliest manuscripts we have is 750 years. There's a gap of 750 years. For the Gaelic Wars that Julius Caesar wrote, it's 1,000 years. For the works of Plato, it's 1,100 years. For the writings of Aristotle, it's 1,400 years. Now, here's something interesting. Universities and schools of higher learning teach that these are historically reliable manuscripts. They teach our children as we send them off and pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to the university, they teach them that these works of antiquity, these works of literature, they're taught in their philosophy classes, their literature classes, their history classes, that these are true writings. And we see that kind of distance from the time they were originally written to the time that we have the earliest manuscript. Think about 1,400 years being 1,400 people in that line of the telephone game. But here's something very interesting about the New Testament. With the New Testament, the distance is about 50 to 60 years. 50 to 60 years from... (laughs) the earliest manuscripts from when they were actually written. This is phenomenal, folks. History people should just be going, wow, this blows my mind. Why isn't the university teaching that as fact? Something to think about. Some parts of the New Testament are this 50 to 60 years, but we have complete copies, complete copies of the entire New Testament that are only gapped by 100 to 120 years. In fact, in Cave 7 of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which they're still uh, working through those, they have found portions of the Gospel of Mark that were written within 30 to 34 years of the death of Jesus Christ. 30 years after. Folks, this, this should blow our minds. 
if we even begin to trust those other four works as possibly authentic, the New Testament should just win hands down. Now, here's another interesting fact. If we took every manuscript of the Bible, we took every copy of the Bible today, every single uh, copy that existed and destroyed them, we would be able to recreate the entire New Testament, except for 11 verses, from quotes and letters and sermons of the early church fathers. In other words, they quoted the scripture so much that even outside copies of the Bible in and of itself, we would be able to recreate because of 86,489 quotes, we would be able to recreate the entire New Testament except 11 verses. Those poor 11 verses have never been quoted. Folks, that's phenomenal. That is absolutely phenomenal. Now here's another big test. It's not just the distance of time but it's also how many copies of the manuscripts there are. The higher the number of copies of the manuscript, the greater the ability to determine the original. In other words, think, think this through for a minute. So if you have one manuscript that's here, or one, one original, and then you have another, just one manuscript that's done 100 years later, the original disappears, what's the likelihood that this is absolutely and completely like the original? It's hard to tell, really. It's hard to tell. But if you have the original, you have 100 manuscripts that are still in your hands that are all the same. They all have perfect harmony with each other, and you lose the original. Then you go, well, I've got 100 of them. That's pretty cool. I'll bet it's just like the original. So the more copies you have, the more likely it is that the original has been copied perfectly. So let's look at those same works of history. For plenty of the younger, you've got seven copies. For the Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar, you have 10 manuscripts. For the works of Plato, only seven. For the writings of Aristotle, 49. That's pretty good. And by the way, number two in history is the Iliad by Homer. Not Homer Simpson, the other one, okay? And there are 643 manuscripts that all coincide from Homer's Iliad, 643. Pretty impressive, pretty impressive, but not quite as impressive as the New Testament, which has 24,633 manuscripts. If two is better than one and three is better than two, 24,000 is way better than 643. You see, folks, there are so many copies, there are so many manuscripts of the New Testament we have discovered so many of them that are completely and totally in unison with one another, especially those of the original language, that they are exactly, they are exactly like the original. We have to come to that conclusion. We have to come to that conclusion, okay? So how can we trust that the Bible's true? Is what we have today what was written down 2,000 years ago? The answer is yes, yes. What we have in our Bible app or in our Bible in our hand, it is, it is what was written 2,000 years ago. There is hard, clear, uh, historical evidence that it is the same thing. Now let's not forget about that other question. Is what was written down 2,000 years ago true? 
Okay, so we've got an accurate copy of what was originally written down. How do we know that's true? Well, let's look at a couple of things here. First of all, I want you to see that the writers of the New Testament wrote as eyewitnesses or recorded eyewitness accounts. What that means is everybody, and this is part of putting the Bible together as one collection, that means that everybody who's written a part of the New Testament either was an eyewitness to it or they were one person removed. They were listening to an eyewitness account and they wrote it down. Matthew, uh, Mark, and John were all eyewitnesses to what Jesus did and said. Luke was not, but he was writing down the eyewitness accounts, and we'll see that here in just a minute. Folks, when you, so when we're talking about the telephone game, we're not talking about these guys being number 10 or number 20 or number 50. These guys are number one or maybe number two. Now, if you've ever played the telephone game with two people, but it's pretty simple. It's pretty hard to mess it up just from one person. I want you to see some things that the writers of the New Testament wrote about this. In 1 John 1, 3, it says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. What John is saying here is this. Look, guys, I'm telling you what I've seen and heard. I'm not telling you some stories that somebody told me. I'm telling you what I have personally experienced about Jesus. It doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that, folks. Look what it says in 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, listen, we didn't, we didn't just come up with a bunch of myths. We didn't come up with a bunch of stories. We witnessed this. I saw this with my own eyes. I'm telling you. Look what it says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The reality, folks, is while the New Testament is not exhaustive, it is sufficient. In other words, it doesn't have everything that ever happened to Jesus. It doesn't have everything that he ever did. It doesn't have everything that the disciples or the apostles ever did. But it is sufficient in that we can know God and know his Son, Jesus Christ, and know how to give our lives to him. Lastly, in Acts, I want you to see this. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is uh, Peter preaching. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, he says something that's really a pretty phenomenal here. He says, as you yourselves know. He's not writing to just his buddies who believe like he does. He's, he's writing to all. And he says, listen, guys, I, I'm test, attesting to you what happened to Jesus. And you guys know it. You know it. You know better, guys. You know that this is true. That's what he's saying to them. Now, listen. If Peter was lying, he would have been strung up right then and there. The community back then was a very powerful corrector of false statements. If he would have said, listen, you all know this, and it wasn't true, they'd have gone, hey, Joe, that guy's lying about us. You want to kill him? Uh, sure, Sam, let's go kick this guy and kill him. Okay, let's go. Let's get our buddies. And they'll all go take him and kill him. I mean, that's what happened. But they stood there, frozen. They couldn't do a thing. 
Because when he looked at him and said, you know this is true. We're like, yeah, they kind of do. Folks, that's pretty hard evidence. Pretty hard evidence. So when we ask the question, is what was written down 2,000 years ago true? I would say clearly what was written down 2,000 years ago was true. It absolutely was true. Now, very quickly, let me share with you why the Bible is the most unique book ever written in all of history. First, in comparison with other works of literature. We've already looked at that. Folks, by far, it has the most copies. It has the closest timeline. In every single way, it is far and above every other work of antiquity when it comes to its reliability and its authenticity. Way above it. Way above it. It's also very unique in its circulation. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this today, but in circulation, if we measure just the Bible societies, okay, so forget all the publishing companies, forget all the printing companies. When we look at just the Bible societies that have made copies of the Bible, it adds up to 2,582,000,000 copies of the Bible. It is the best-selling book of all time, by far. If we stop the clock in 1974 and just measure the Bibles made by Bible societies up to that point, one printer would have to print one copy per three seconds, that's 20 a minute, for 24 hours solid for 245 years to equal just the Bible, what the Bible societies have printed of the Bible in the New Testament. If we, if we laid out the pages end to end, those pages would circle the globe over a thousand times. No book even comes close to the Bible in its circulation and last in its continuity. And I would say, uh, take a look at this, uh, read up on this, because I think this is probably one of the most fascinating things about why the Bible is true. When you look at the Bible, it was written over a span of 1,500 years. It had 40 different authors. They were of different uh, walks of life. There were kings and fishermen and poets, musicians, statesmen. It was written on three different continents. It was written in three different languages. Uh, uh, men wrote it uh, during different times of emotions, joy and sorrow, during times of war and peace. And they wrote on hundreds of controversial subjects. And yet, the continuity is perfect on every subject. Now, if we tried to get 40 people into a room that could agree on two subjects, it would be a miracle. You've got 40 authors in all these different places, in all this different time span, through all these different things, and they agree on every single topic, and they write about the continuity of God's redemption of humanity through the Savior Jesus Christ, and they do it with complete continuity. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And by the way, I would, I would say that if you believe it does, uh, perhaps it's not the Bible that contradicts, but it's your understanding of it that seems to contradict, just like absolutism and relativism. So when we look at this, folks, the answer is this. How can we trust that the Bible is true? Because every test to determine its authenticity, its reliability, and that's that the Bible is indeed the word of God. Anybody who looks at the evidence, remember when we talked last week about the evidence for the resurrection, can we absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, as scientifically that the resurrection took place? No, we can't. But if we look at the evidence for the resurrection and the evidence for every alternative theory, 
it takes the least amount of faith to believe the resurrection because all the evidence is for that. It's the same way with the Bible. Can we prove scientifically that it is the absolute word of God? No, we cannot. It takes faith. But the faith for its uniqueness and and the fact that it is different than any other work uh, and it is more consistent, all those kind of things, it's, it's like this. And every other work of literature is like this. Lastly, I want to take you through one question that always comes up, and that's this. Why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> Why do bad? People have been asking this, and actually have been asking it in the Bible for centuries. Why do bad things happen to good people? Every time I get asked this question, here's what I say to them. Wrong question. It's the wrong question. Now, I want to answer the question, but I want to come back to why it's the wrong question. Okay? By the way, when people ask you questions... Listen carefully for the suppositions that they make in the question itself because they've made some suppositions here. They're they're making a a supposition that there are bad things and good things. They're making a supposition that somebody gets to define those and since I'm asking the question, I get to be the one to define what's good and bad, right? It also supposes that there are good people. What does the Bible say? The Bible says there are no good people. There are no good people. Mark 10, 18 clearly says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. One of the reasons that we have terrible things in our lives or things that we see as terrible is because we are sinners. And we bring much of our own pain on ourselves. We make choices that are not good. We choose to do what we want instead of what God wants. We make choices that are selfish and impulsive. And we bring a lot of pain and agony on ourselves. But another reason is we live in a fallen world. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Folks, we live in a fallen world. I'm not just a sinner, but so are all of you. I'm surrounded by sinners. And so are you. And all of us at times want what we want. And we're selfish. And we're impulsive. And we hurt each other. And a lot of pain is brought into our life by others. And simply falling in a world that is wracked with sin. And then the reality is that life circumstances befall everyone. We sometimes get this idea that um, uh, Charles Schultz and his uh, 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 cartoon Peanuts, we, we sometimes get, think that life is kind of like pig pen, you know? We all kind of create our own little uh, surroundings, and wherever we go, that's where it goes with us. But life isn't like that. Life isn't like that. Look what the Bible says in Matthew 5. Jesus is preaching here, and he says, But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If I think I'm a nice guy and my neighbor's a knucklehead, rarely does it ever rain on my yard and not his. That's just how the world works, folks. So back to the wrong question. The wrong question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Here's the right question. 
Why does God do good things to bad people? That's the right question. Why does God in all of his infinite wisdom be good to people like us? And Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. There's about a 10-week sermon series right in this verse. We'll have to do that sometime. But, but where it says while we were still sinners, what that means is while we were in the process of, while our sins were in the process of spitting on him and beating him and crucifying him and humiliating him, while we were in the process of doing that, God looked down and he said, I love you still. Even when you're doing that to my son, I still love you. See, the question isn't, why does God let bad things happen to good people like me? The real question is, why does God love a knucklehead like me? That's the real question. And when people ask us, why does God let bad things happen to such good people like them? None of us are good people in and of ourselves. We all are broken. We are all messed up. And by the way, if you're coming to this church because you think this is the place we're all going to huddle together and encourage each other to be uh, perfect like we already are, wrong church. We're all messed up, all of us. But God still loves us, and he still wants to do something great with our lives, and he wants to use us to minister to the world. Folks, I want you to understand these principles so that you can talk to the people that you run into that, that want to have conversations about spiritual things. Tomorrow... I predict the sun will go out. <laughs> and there will be a great opportunity for you to have a spiritual conversation with somebody that you're with. I want to encourage you to do that. Don't be afraid if they ask questions. And don't be afraid if you have to say, I don't know, I'll get back with you. Then go and research the answer to that question. I want you to see, folks, that Christianity is not a stupid and uneducated faith. We believe what we believe in faith because it's true. Because it is true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for bringing it to us and protecting it. And Father, we pray that you will help us as we have conversations with those around us. That you will help us to be able to defend our faith. Not because you need us to defend you, but because we have committed to something. We have given our lives to you. And we should be able to clearly articulate why we've done that to others. God, give us opportunities tomorrow as the sun goes out. Give us opportunities to share the gospel with people around us, to have spiritual conversations and talk about the truth. Most of all, God, we thank you for showering your mercy and your grace and your love on sinners like us who deserve nothing, who deserve nothing but to be forever separated from you. Thank you for your mercy and grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.